when you were overcome by emotions because of some unexpected blessing. Men, how about it? How about when she said, yes, I choose you. Birth moms, what about that first cry, when you heard that first cry? Adoptive parents, how about when the judge said, she's yours? High schoolers, when you successfully passed the Oregon driver's test. And I heard uh, the parents were the ones that were uh, rejoicing with that one. How about students in junior high uh, when the report card showed uh, higher grades than expected? Or some of you younger kids that may be here in the audience with us this morning. Remember Christmas morning? Remember uh, when you tore into those wrapped packages and there it was, whatever it was. For me... I love sports, so one of the, one of the many times of just uh, abounding joy uh, was uh, the first game of the 1988 World Series. It's the most iconic moment in baseball from where I come from because uh, Kirk Gibson comes off the bench for the L.A. Dodgers and he smacks a home run to win that first game and they go on to, to win that World Series. Amazing. You know, the late uh, ESPN sportscaster, those of you that follow sports, uh, Stuart Scott, famously used a phrase to describe this kind of joy, this kind of happiness. Do you know what it is? Booyah! (laughs) This psalm today, Psalm 32, is a booyah psalm. It's filled with booyah. It's interesting, you can look that word up and it's actually in a dictionary. It's it's to express uh, abounding joy, especially over a victorious moment in sports. And so, uh, today's psalm... uh, Psalm 32 is our final song for the summer. And you know, we started back on June 25th, uh, 10 psalms ago with Psalm 22, and we've been skillfully led, guided through these 10 rich songs by Pastor Scott, uh, Eric, uh, Taylor, and Travis. And this morning, Travis at our Wilsonville campus is, is doing the same thing I'm doing, uh, wrapping up this series. Uh, before we read the psalm, I'd like to share some interesting background information. It'll, it'll kind of set the tone, set the background for what David is about to, to reveal to us. First of all, uh, this song is called a maskil. It's the first of actually 13 maskil songs or psalms. And it's the primary meaning of that Hebrew term is to make wise or to make keen or clever or even prudent. In other words, it's to instruct. This is a song of instruction. And so if I were to give a title for today's sermon, the title would be, as a teacher, A Lesson Plan on Forgiveness. It's also the second of seven what are called penitential songs. The Apostle Paul quotes this, this, uh, the first two verses of this psalm in Romans 4, 6 through 8. Uh, part of his argument for salvation by grace alone, through faith. Because these two verses, these first two verses of uh, Psalm 32, focus on this divine gift of grace, this divine gift of God's forgiveness, which comes on the basis of faith alone. So whenever you see a connection like that into the New Testament, if the Apostle Paul is going to weave into his presentation, into his writing, a passage out of the Old Testament, it it bears us paying attention to it. Because it it shows that this, uh, this book that we carry with us, and some of you carry it in your phones and on your pads, it's an integrated 
system, message system. It, it comes from God to us and communicates to us. So because Paul is using it, we're going to focus on it again this morning. In churches that follow a liturgical church calendar, Psalm 32 is read on the morning of Ash Wednesday. That's the first day of the 40 days of Lent, ramping up to the week of Passion and to our Lord's crucifixion and then resurrection. It was also St. Augustine's favorite psalm. Uh, Augustine, the, the North African bishop of Hippo, he had it inscribed on the wall next to his bed and be, right before he died. And he did that in order to meditate on this psalm all the better. He liked it, he said, because, quote, the beginning of knowledge is to know yourself, to know oneself as a sinner. So I'd invite you to turn on your Bibles or turn in your Bibles to Psalm 32. We'll also have the text up on the screen behind me. It's also in your bulletin this morning on the, that talk sheet. Um, but if you do have your Bible with you, open to Psalm 32, turn it on your phone, on your pad, and let's invest some time reading through this psalm one more time. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's take just a minute and kind of work our way through a very quick outline of lesson plan on forgiveness. I'm a teacher at heart and by training and by gifting, and so this psalm fits very nicely into how I like to approach Scripture. But in verses 1 and 2, we, we see that forgiveness produces true happiness. You want true, real happiness, exultant, abounding joy. It begins with forgiveness. In verses 3 and 4, we discover, unfortunately, the consequences of unconfessed sin. In verse 5, David gives his confession. And verse 5 is actually the central part of this entire psalm. Verses 6 through 8 David begins to give an application to the audience that's around him. He wants to communicate with others what he himself has learned through confession of his own sin. 
verses 9 through the beginning of verse 10, there is a warning. And then finally, in verses, uh, the end of verse 10 and on into 11 is what I would call the doxology. Now, there's one more important structural note that I want to make. Uh, David is writing a psalm, right? We're calling them songs for the summer. He's writing a musical piece, a song. It's not an outline narrative. Now, I've just given you an outline narrative, but that's not what this is really all about. It's a song. And so David uh, punctuates this psalm with this unusual little word that Taylor has already referenced. You've seen it on the screen. I've read it three times again. It's used three times in this psalm, and it's the word selah, or selah. Or if I pronounced it in the Hebrew, it would be misunderstandable. Let's just say selah. Selah actually occurs 71 times in the book of Psalms and three more times in the book of Habakkuk. There's many different definitions. We're not exactly sure what that that word means when it's translated into English, but the best definition is the one that I'm going to use this morning, and that is it's most likely um, a signal to the choir master that it's time for a musical interlude. In other words, singers, stop singing. Speakers, stop talking. And let the, the music continue, the instrumentalist continue, so that the audience has a bit of time to begin to ponder the truth of what has just been sung, the truth of, of what has just been shared. We're actually going to do that this morning. Uh, and with Taylor's help, he's going to facilitate this a little bit later. We're going to do this three times this morning, because David did it three times. And so, as, as the church in worship, David was in the temple worshiping, we're in, the, in God's, God's church here worshiping. We're going to do the exact same thing. We're going to have opportunities to pause and ponder the truth of what we've just heard. But let's go back to verses, uh, verses 1 and 2. Uh, this lesson plan for forgiveness, again, begins with the, the overarching theme. that, And this is really the big idea of the psalm, is that forgiveness is what produces true happiness. You can tell as you walked in this morning that we're going to share the Lord's Supper. We're going to observe communion this morning at the conclusion of the service. And gosh, what better psalm than Psalm 32 to lead right into that. But I've discovered in my 65 years of life, which has all been in in Baptist churches uh, around the country and around the world, um, and in 45 plus years of, of, of ministering in those churches, I've discovered that too often we tend to come to the table of communion. We tend to come to this time of receiving God's forgiveness in, in kind of a sad, plodding sort of a way. We're going we're gonna to see that David's going to turn this on its head. David is going to basically say, because of the forgiveness that I've experienced, booyah, and I'm going to celebrate that. So I share that right now because I I want you to to process this as we go through God's Word so that when we come to the table at the end of this morning's message, we'll come with hearts full of joy. Uh, We've confessed our sins. God has brought forgiveness. And as a result, we're celebrating the Lord's table. In that very first word, and, and too often it gets, it gets mispronounced in English. We might say how, how blessed is, or how blessed is the man, or how, how blessed is he. What David is really doing, this is an interjection. He is, he is saying how happy you ought to be, how blessed you should be, how overabundantly full of joy you should be. That, by the way, is how he starts the book of Psalms. 
Psalm 1-1 starts with the exact same interjection. How happy we should be because of what forgiveness comes. In fact, it, verse 1, if you look at it in the original language, it's, it's, it's rapid fire. It's just boom, boom, boom. In fact, if you have a King James Version here this morning, look at that right now, and you'll notice that there are some italicized words in verse 1. Those are words that have been supplied by the translators to help kind of make sense of it. If you read it just straight out of the original language, this is how it would sound. Blessed, transgression, forgiven, sin, covered. It's as if uh, David is, is, is out of breath. He's, he's, just, he's, he's breathlessly sharing out of his joy uh, what he's feeling because of the forgiveness that God has given to him. Notice also, I think this is great, verses 1 and 2, David begins his discussion on confession and forgiveness. He begins it with praise and worship. Why is that important? It's because God is God and we're not. And that's why we need His forgiveness. Because we so often uh, fall and miss the mark and don't live up to His standards, but yet He's willing and, and able and ready to forgive us. And so, um, out of our realization of who God is and our worship of, of God, um, com- comes forth what, what, he's, what He's called us to do here this morning. David uses three different words, and I, I apologize, I'm, I'm learning a little bit about the PowerPoint. That's a little hard to see. I've, I've highlighted in, in red, and it's, it's, almost, it's, it's almost disappeared here. But David uses three distinct words to describe sin. And to me, this illustrates kind of the multifaceted uh, approach to sin and how it, its very nature, how it impacts us. He uses the term transgression, which would refer to uh, someone uh, crossing over the line. Uh, it, it, it's a trespass. It, it, it became, the more it was used, it became an idea of a, of a defection from truth. Literally, it's best translated as rebellion. David's speaking of uh, the rebellion that is forgiven. The second word he uses is the word sin. And that, in its original meaning, referred to a, a turning away from the true path of obedience. Instead of getting and staying on the path of obedience and walking with the Lord on the path of obedience, we step off that path. That's what sin is. We miss the mark. We miss God's standards. And the third word is a really strong word. It's a word from which uh, the, the idea of something that's twisted, something that's bent, something that's distorted, even perverted. That's the word iniquity. That's what happens to our inner character when we, uh, when we sin, when we miss God's mark, when we fail to live up to the standards that He's given us to, to live up to. Well, sin may be multifaceted, but God's plan for forgiveness is comprehensive. I love that. Uh, Forgiveness is comprehensive, it's absolute, it's complete. And in verses 1 and 2, David uses three words, forgiven, covered, and counts no no iniquity. He uses three terms in order to counter this multifaceted aspect of sin. The idea of forgiven literally is the idea of, of having a burden that lifted up off of you, bared up by someone else, and carried away. And that's what happens when Jesus paid the price and took our sin. In fact, in Hebrews 9.28, Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, He reached down, picked up our sin, put it on His back, and He took it to the cross. 
Back in Genesis 4.13, when Cain had just uh, killed his brother Abel and God judges him, Cain says to God, my punishment is too great to bear. Absolutely, it is too great to bear. And the punishment for our sin is too great to bear. None of us, none of us can, can stand up under the, the weight of, of the guilt that comes from failing to meet God's standards. But again, Jesus is the one who's lifted that up. He has forgiven us of those sins. The second word that David uses is this word covered. He says, whose sin is covered. Again, the idea of something concealed, something hidden. Sin is seen as an imperfection. It's a, it's a defect which must be removed. It must be cleansed. And of course, we sang about that this morning. That's what the blood of Jesus does. The blood of Jesus covers over us. That's what Jews, when they celebrate Yom Kippur, the, the day of atonement, the day of Kippur, literally covering. Uh, the blood of Jesus covers over, it, it conceals, it hides our sin uh, from, before, from in front of God's sight. And then I love this last term. For those of you that are accountants in the room, this last term uh, counts no iniquity. The New American Standard uses the word impute. It's a commercial accounting term. It's a bookkeeping term. It means to, to charge to one's account or to reckon or to calculate against one's account. And what David is saying here is that um, how happy, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord doesn't do that. He doesn't uh, put to our account the perverseness, the bentness, the twistedness of sin. You know, that in and of itself, just those first two verses, I, I could stop right there. Some of you are probably wishing I would, but I could stop right there. And that would be enough. That would be enough. But David goes on to share the reality of what life is, has been like for him. So in uh, verses 3 and 4, he talks about the consequences. The consequences of, of unconfessed sin. Do you remember the context of his sin, his most infamous sins? In 2 Samuel chapter 11, you might want to make a note of that. You can look it up later. But in 2 Samuel chapter 11, you, you'll read about his adultery with Bathsheba. David is a married man. Bathsheba is a married woman. He lusts after her, has adultery with her. And then, to make matters worse, he follows up with premeditated murder of her husband. According to 2 Samuel 11.27, David had covered this, these two sins. He had covered them up for almost a year. Think about that. That's amazing. Sometimes we just kind of read through that quickly and we kind of gloss over that. David is wrestling. David is struggling with the consequences of unconfessed sin because he's, he's covered it for so long. So that's what verses 3 and 4 show us. For when I kept silent, David says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Now, David was in the prime of his life. He was in middle age or late middle age, most likely, when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. But he went from being this, this strong, robust military king to uh, a man whose body was racked with pain and weakness, all because of the sin that he thought he was hiding from God. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, prince of preachers from England from many, many years ago, has said this about this passage. What a killing thing is sin. It is a pestilent disease, a fire in the bones. While we smother our sin, it rages within, and like a gathering wound swells horribly and torments terribly. 
Debbie and I have a good friend in Southern California. He was actually our former pastor who uh, talks about how that when we bury sin, we bury it alive. And unless we deal with that and allow God to deal with our, our unconfessed sin, it will rear its ugly head sooner or later. This idea of David saying that uh, through my groaning all day long, that's, that term is a term that describes the, the plaintive, distressed cry or growl of a lion. I had the unique privilege of being in Eastern Africa this last February, was ministering in Ethiopia for a, a week and a half, and then at the tail end of that, I was invited to go on an African safari in Kenya. I, I've never done that before. All expenses paid, so I couldn't pass that up. But we heard this. We heard this at night, and I've seen it online. You could actually, you could actually Google a lion roaring in the Maasai Mara, and it's a, it's a plaintive, um, uh, distressed cry. Uh, male lions often do that if they're surrounded by hyenas who are trying to steal their prey. This is, this is what uh, Jesus quotes uh, Psalm 22.1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning, this plaintive cry. In verse 4, we read that day and night, David says, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. In Psalm 38 and also Psalm 39, David says the same thing again. Your hand is pressed down on me. Remove your plague from me, God, because of the opposition of your hand I am perishing. You know, this reminds me of what the author to the New Testament book of Hebrews talks about in Hebrews chapter 12, when he talks about the discipline of God on his children. It's like the discipline of a father on on his son or daughter who have stepped out of the way, who have not done what we've asked them to do or not done what we did ask them to do. And um, it, 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 when, that's, when that's, that's happening, we feel this, this heaviness. Um, it's interesting... Debbie and I have five grandchildren, and so that's been a joy to kind of watch discipline from afar, right? <laughs> I mean, we had our chance with our three over the years, and so now to watch our, our grown children, married children, discipline their children, our grandchildren. And I've observed this. I've observed this with our children, is when they're, oftentimes when they're guiding or disciplining, and it's not always a negative thing, there's, there's that kind of heavy hand on on that child, kind of, kind of guiding them. Think of a, uh, think of a shepherd with sheep, with a, a staff, and trying to guide the sheep back onto the path so they won't fall into the ravine. There's a, there's a heaviness there. There's a guiding there. And that's exactly what's going on. And Dave, David is feeling this. He's feeling the heavy hand of God. So much so that he says, my, my strength is dried up. Literally, the, the moisture in my body, the sap in my body is dried up. He's, we would say today, he's sapped. He's, he's over. It's, he's done. He feels done. In Psalm 38, David writes this about what he's feeling. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities are gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. My wounds grow foul and fester because of my folly. Wow. Talk about an alliteration. I am bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. For my loins are filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am benumbed and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. 
Again, uh, Charles Spurgeon writes, God does not permit His children to sin successfully. Think about that. He loves us too much. I'm going to ask Taylor to to come forward and prepare to to kind of facilitate this 30 seconds or more of of a Selah time. Um, Think about how maybe God has not permitted you to sin successfully. Think about... Think about sins that you may be hiding. Ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to your mind, to your heart, things that you might be trying to hide from Him. And we'll just take about 30 seconds. Taylor will play a little musical interlude for this time of Selah. Fortunately, David doesn't leave there um, in that moment of uh, weakness and not sure where to turn. In verse 5 comes the the confession. Uh, This is the heart of this psalm or this song. And in uh, verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's interesting. There's multiple times in this psalm where David repeats things three times over. He's doing that for emphasis. He wants to make sure his audience gets what he's gotten. And so here he repeats the same three words for sin in order to emphasize what's going on. The clauses of this verse stand in contrast to verses 1 and 2. The sin that's now acknowledged so that it will not be imputed. The iniquity is uncovered. We take it out of the darkness and put it into the light of God's Word and God's grace so that it may be covered by His love. And the transgression is confessed so that it may be lifted up and carried away. This reminds me of 1 John 1.9. Right? If we confess our sins, literally, if and when we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, basically, that's John's re- rewording of, of, this, uh, of this verse right here, verse 5. I love the, the, the meaning of that term confess. It, when John writes it, if, we, if and when we confess our sins, he's literally saying uh, two things. He's taking two Greek words and putting them together. He's saying when we say the same, when we say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. That's what confession is. And I, I've shared that with many friends over the years, many who have come out of a Roman Catholic background, because when you, 
when you tend to, when you share that word confess, oftentimes immediately they will click to an idea of a booth. I've never been in one of those, but a, a booth where you go in and you begin to confess your sins through a screen to a priest on the other side. And there may or may not be some value in that, but that's not what, what is being said here by David. That's certainly not what, what John is saying. When we come to the point where we're able to say the same thing about our behavior that God says about our behavior, that is confession. And when we do that, as in Psalm 32, 5, 1 John 1, 9, He is faithful and righteous, and He will forgive us our sins. And this morning, a little bit later, when we celebrate communion, that's what we're celebrating. The fact that He has forgiven us when we've come to terms with what He says about our sin. Now, mind you, David still suffered some consequences from his sins. God forgives us our sins, but sometimes we will reap what we sow. Unfortunately, that child that Bathsheba bore as a result of their adulterous relationship, gave, she gave birth to a son, but he died shortly after birth. David's another son, Amnon, raped his half-sister Tamar and then was killed by David's other son, Absalom. Absalom tried to seize the throne and was killed by Joab, David's military leader. And even while David was on his deathbed, another son, Adonijah, tried to uh, take the scepter from Solomon and was later killed. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurt. Consequences of behavior, but David was forgiven. I don't want us to think that if, if we just confess our sins, everything's going to be rosy. It is in relationship to God, but there may be consequences as well. Again, I'm going to ask Taylor to, to, to come and lead us in a, another um, Selah interlude because David stops after verse 5 and says, look, think about this, ponder about this, and maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit has revealed something in the last few minutes that you or I need to come to terms with. We need to agree with God about. Again, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you as we pause to ponder. Once David has confessed his sin, he basically is, in a sense, turning to the audience, and this is what he says as he applies what he's learned. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, the waters shall not reach him. They shall not reach him. It appears that David's confession may actually have been within earshot of the worshiping congregation. In fact, in 2 Samuel 12:20, shortly after that, that son dies, 
David arises from the ground where he's been mourning. He washes himself. He anoints himself with oil, changes his clothes. And then what does he do? He goes into the house of the Lord. He goes into the temple and he worships. Now, it also appears from Psalm 51, that great psalm where David confesses his sin after Nathan had rebuked him. In that psalm, in verse 13, David says to God, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. So it appears that people are listening. It it appears that uh, David has made a promise to God. And so that's what Psalm 32 is all about. It's the fulfillment of that vow or that promise. And he's doing it within the context of God's people. Also in verse 7, he begins to, to list some of the many benefits. In verses 6 through 8 and even verse 10, there's multiple benefits. But here are three in verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. You almost get the sense that other worshipers in the temple, when they realize what's going on with their king, that they they literally may have shouted out, um, surrounding him with shouts of deliverance as David is is, uh, feeling the the joy of, of having confessed his sin. It's interesting, too, to me that years later, his son Solomon, and we know Solomon was a, was a mixed basket of, of issues, but in, in Proverbs 28, 13, even Solomon picks up on what he learned from his father. He says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them uh, will find compassion. One last time, I'm going to ask Taylor to come forward, and, and I... Appreciate him doing this. I just just feel like we need to model what David himself is doing. For this one last Selah moment, I'd like us to think about the benefits that we've experienced by confessing sin. Maybe, just maybe, some of us in here have experienced that right this morning. As the Holy Spirit has revealed something to us, we've confessed it, we're already feeling those benefits. Pause to ponder the benefits that we've experienced by confessing sin. I love that musical reference there to nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Taylor. In verse 8, now, God uh, enters the conversation. God enters this psalm, this prayer, this song. And God himself uh, delivers three additional benefits. Verse 8 reads, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Instruct, teach, counsel. Once again, for emphasis. And God furthermore says, and I'm going to keep my eye on you. 
Parents, uh, we do that, right, when we are disciplining our children, sometimes from afar. In fact, I, uh, a month ago, I sent an email to our three grown children, and I said, can you remember a time when I disciplined you by simply the look? Interesting, none of our three children responded to that, which tells me that I must have you know, never done that kind of thing. I must have been a really nice guy. Uh, or they just really didn't want to bring up bad memories again. But you know what I'm talking about, parents, right? When all, all it takes, you see your child maybe in church, down the pew, doing something, and it, it, it doesn't require a touch. It just takes a look. Well, in, in a sense, th- that's what's happening here. But, but in a very positive sense, God is keeping his eye on us. In fact, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to our cry. God gives us a warning, beginning in verse 9. And he says, look, don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Horses and mules, uh, horses especially, may be smart animals, but they don't have the moral compass built within them that we do as human beings made in the image of God. They don't have that moral sense to guide their decision-making. And you know what? When David committed adultery and followed it with premeditated murder, he was acting like a beast. He was not acting like a man created in the image of God. He was acting like a senseless beast. And God is is warning, saying, don't be like that. Finally, um, in the, the, the closing uh, verse here is what I would like to call the, the doxology, because those who've, who've been blessed and who are noted for being blessed in the opening verses, they're now invited to join David in praise. The, the back part of verse 10, and then into verse 11. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord, but be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. You know, last week, Scott, I thought he... He, he, he preached his heart out. I, I, just, I was so touched by last week's message, particularly this emphasis that he gave to what's called steadfast love. The New American Standard calls it loving kindness. The King James uses the term mercy. But it's this idea, it's this hesed uh, love. It, it, and like he said last week, it's a term that's not easily translated into our English language. But it's a term that means that God has covenanted. He has pledged his fidelity to us. That's the kind of love that's there. And as a result of that kind of love, uh, David is able to conclude with this, with this trilogy of, of praise. Be glad. Rejoice. Shout for joy. I was telling Taylor this morning, you know, in the original language, in the Hebrew language, you know what the term shout for joy means? It means shout for joy. <laughs> and uh, Baptists often need to be reminded of that, right? In a sense, David, I hate to, uh, if I could say this, David is in, a, is in a sense is just crying out, booyah! I mean, he's just so excited. He's, he's shouting for joy because of the forgiveness of sins. About 300 years later, uh, the prophet Micah wrote these words, Who is a God like you? who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever, 
because He delights in unchanging love. There's that word, hesed. Because He delights in this covenantal pledge of fidelity, this unchanging love. And this is all a beautiful uh, connection here into, into communion this morning. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you claim Jesus as your Savior and Lord, if you're a believer in the saving grace of Jesus, then you're welcome at these tables. And there's tables in the front, there's tables in the back. This is not a closed communion to the members of New Life. Actually, if it was, I, I wouldn't be part of it because I haven't gone through the new members class yet. But this, this, is, this is open, though. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is open to you. If you're not a follower of Jesus... If you don't claim Him as your Savior and Lord, then maybe just take these next several minutes as, as a time to, uh, as a Selah moment. As a time to just be quiet and ponder while the rest of us celebrate. And so during the next song, uh, the way that we do communion here at New Life is we ask you to simply go to one of the stations. There's two up front, two in the back. And there's one up in the balcony, I see. And, uh, and take the elements. And then please just return to your seats. Because we're going to take them together as a body um, after the, the playing of the music.